Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, but before we get to Matthew 5, we're going to be in John 11. So turn to John 11 first, and then we'll get back to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue on this journey looking at the blessings of the kingdom, the beauty of the Beatitudes. John chapter 11. In January of 1994... A phenomenon erupted in an airport in Toronto, Canada, called the Laughing Revival. I don't know if you everybody remember that. It was called the Toronto Blessing or the Laughing Revival. And here's what happened. People began to do some very weird things. They began to bark like dogs and uncontrollably shake and laugh hysterically. And they would roll around and they would just uncontrollably laugh and supposedly God was pouring out his spirit and and the, the leader of this movement called himself the Holy Ghost bartender he would give this holy laughter to people so they could get drunk in the spirit and this movement still lingers on today with people barking like dogs and laughing uncontrollable the the holy laughter movement it's a product of the Today's Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Gospel Movement. That Today's Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Gospel Movement basically says it's a sin to be sick. It's a sin to be poor. You need to have everything that your heart desires. You need to just sow your seed into this televangelist ministry and you won't have any problems. You won't have any trials. Everything will go your way. Just name it and claim it and it will be yours. Now I want you to ask yourself a question. Does this uncontrollable laughter and barking like dogs and rolling around uncontrollably have anything to do with what you see in the New Testament or anything with what you see Jesus himself doing? Now, I want you to picture this laughing revival in your mind, people barking like dogs and laughing uncontrollably. I want you to contrast that with the scene of our Savior, Jesus, when he's at the tomb of Lazarus who has been dead over four days. Let's look at John chapter 11, verses 32 through 35. John 11, 32 through 35, and I want you to keep this, these two scenes in your mind. The laughing revival in Jesus here at the tomb of a friend that he loved. Starting in verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It says there that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. 
Literally, in the original language, it means he snorted like a horse. He was agitated. He was moved. He was bothered. He, 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 was, he was disturbed in his spirit when he saw what was happening at the tomb of Lazarus. And we have to ask ourselves a question. Why was Jesus so angry? Why was Jesus so moved? What moved Jesus? Was he, was he sad that Lazarus had died? Well, yes, but he knew in just a few moments he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. I think Jesus was sad. Jesus was bothered. Jesus mourned because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where there's brokenness. There's broken relationships. There's, there's broken promises. There's, there's hurt. There's pain. There's grief. There's war. There's disease. There's, there's famine. There's all these things that you can think of. There's child abuse and murder and genocide and rape and all these things that are a product of our fallen world. And I think that that moment when Jesus saw these people weeping, he was moved to tears because of the brokenness of our world. And it says Jesus wept. Now, when I was a kid, we used to memorize that verse because it's the shortest verse in the New Testament. Jesus wept. But really, in the original language, it means that Jesus began to sob uncontrollably. It was this powerful sobbing, bursting into tears. Now here's something interesting about Jesus. If you go back and you look at the Bible, we never ever have one recorded instance of Jesus ever laughing. Now it doesn't mean that Jesus never laughed, but we don't have any recorded instances of Jesus ever laughing. As a matter of fact, Jesus is called the man of sorrows. In Isaiah 53, 3, He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So ask yourself a question. Uncontrollable laughter, rolling around on the floor, barking like barnyard animals, or a deep mourning over the brokenness of a sinful world that we see in our Savior. Is sin truly destructive? Does sin truly cause us to, to grief and to mourn? What does it mean to mourn? Or are we guaranteed our heart's desires, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel would tell us no problems, no issues, no nothing, just trust Jesus and you won't ever have to have problems again in your life. This morning, we hear these countercultural words of Jesus that really don't quite make sense. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 5, and let's, let's pick up in the Beatitudes where we started last week. Last week, Jesus told us, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's, let's read in the context here, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Seeing the crowds, remember there's the crowds there. He's not specifically talking to the crowds. He's talking to his disciples. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So remember, last week, this is a message to believers. He's talking to disciples. He's talking to those who are already Christians, those who are already in the kingdom, those who've been adopted into God's family, and he's giving these blessings. The king of the kingdom is pronouncing these blessings upon his people. And the first one we saw last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this sounds really weird, doesn't it? It almost sounds countercultural. To be happy means to be sad. 
To be joyful means to be mournful. Now, why is this a blessing? Remember when Jesus says blessed, he's pronouncing a blessing. And remember, some translations use the word happy. I don't quite like that because happiness is dependent upon your circumstances. Really what he's saying is congratulations to you because you have been a recipient of grace. God in his grace has saved you. God has changed you. God has adopted you. God has made you a child. And so he favorably looks down upon you. You have the smile of God upon your life because you're in the kingdom. Congratulations to you. You are blessed when you mourn. And we look at this and we think, Jesus, this doesn't make sense. We're blessed when we mourn? And like I said last week, we need to recalibrate ourselves to to really what Jesus is talking about because life in the kingdom is different than life in the world. We in the kingdom now have new priorities, new passions, new new values, new, 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 new allegiances. And so we need to recalibrate and ask ourselves, what does it mean to mourn? What does this really mean? And so here's the big idea for this morning. It's the title of the message. Intense mourning results in incredible joy. Doesn't make sense, does it? Intense mourning results in incredible joy. So like we did last week with the three questions, we're going to ask three questions of this beatitude. Three big issues that we're going to look at. First of all, what is, it, what is mourning not? What is Jesus not saying when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Number two, what is he saying when he tells us, blessed are those who mourn? And number three, what does it truly mean to be comforted? Because he says, you shall be comforted. So let's tackle the first issue this morning, and let's ask the question, what mourning is not? What is Jesus not saying? So here, here, here it is in a sentence. It is not a self-centered, hypocritical, worldly sorrow that's common to all people. Let me repeat that. It's not a self-centered, hypocritical, worldly sorrow that's common to all people. For example, what Jesus is saying here is not bereavement. It's not getting sad because somebody died. Now, all people experience sadness. When you go to a funeral, you're sad. When you lose a loved one, you're sad. When you lose a job, you're sad. But, but non-Christians experience this type of sadness. So it's not just natural bereavement that all of us feel when we lose a loved one. It's not just this, na- this normal mourning that's common to all people. Remember, these are spiritual things Jesus is talking about. In addition, it's not some type of melancholy disposition where you're like Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. Woe is me. Life stinks. You're cynical. You're pessimistic. You're always depressed. You're walking around mopish. It's like, you know those mopish people? It's just their personality to be Eeyore. It's not a personality trait that Jesus is talking about. Because remember, last week, these are things that God supernaturally gives to us when he saves us. So it's not this, this mopish woe is me, Eeyore type of personality trait that Jesus is talking about. But most importantly, it's not a hypocritical or worldly sorrow that comes from getting caught. I got caught, and I didn't get away with it, and I have to live with the the consequences of my sin, therefore I am sad. It's not a hypocritical worldly sorrow where you got caught. Now Paul tells us very clearly that there's a worldly type of sorrow that happens when you get caught. You don't like the consequences of having to have to deal with your sin. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, 
Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul speaks about a worldly grief that does not lead to repentance. A worldly type of mourning is, man, I'm so bummed that I got caught. I'm so upset that I didn't get away with it. I'm so upset that I have to live with the consequences. And you have this brief little period of confession and you tell God, I'll never, 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 never do it again. Knowing all along that the moment that you say, I'm never going to do it again, your heart's desire is to go out and do it again. It's this mourning over the consequences. And we see examples of this all throughout the Bible. Think about Cain for a moment. Right from the shoot, Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. Abel's was. He goes out and he murders his brother. God comes to him and confronts him, and Cain tries to cover it up, and God punishes Cain. God banishes Cain. And listen to the, to the complaint of Cain. He's crying out, and he's mourning to God because he got caught. In Genesis 4, 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Cain was more concerned with his punishment than what the fact that he had sinned against God. He's basically mourning over the fact that I got caught. I'm going to have to deal with the consequences. This is uncomfortable. I don't like it. It's a self-centered, it's a pity type of sorrow that comes from a worldly type of grief. Or think about Judas for a moment. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And he cried bitter tears. And he never repented, and he's in hell this very day. Matthew 27, verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. So Jesus, when he says, blessed are those who mourn, he's not saying that's a natural bereavement or a natural sadness that's common to all people. He's not talking about a personality trait where you're a mopish, depressed type of cynical person that's always walking around sad. It's not a worldly type of grief that comes from getting caught or have to dealing with the consequences. That is not what Jesus is talking about. So, if that's what mourning is not, what is Jesus talking about here when he says, blessed are those who who mourn. Here's what it means. It is a gospel-centered, spiritual type of mourning that is only specific to God's people. People who are already in the kingdom. People who are already believers. It's a spiritual type of mourning. It's a supernatural type of mourning. It's a gospel-centered type of mourning. And it's related to being poor in spirit. What does being poor in spirit mean? We looked at it last week. It means that you come to the point where you have that acute awareness that without Jesus you are nothing. You are spiritually bankrupt. You are helpless. You are hopeless without Christ. And you need that salvation. You need that forgiveness. And when you come to realize that you are nothing without Christ, it moves you to deep mourning because you realize that spiritually you are a sinner and you are bankrupt before a holy God. And you need Jesus alone for salvation. And so it being, being poor in spirit and mourning are intrinsically linked to one another. They, they're related to one another. It's the result of being poor in spirit. Remember last week, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. When we realize that we have nothing to offer Jesus, it moves us to mourn. And there are two specific ways in which we mourn. Here's the first. We mourn over our own personal sin 
and all of its ravaging effects. We mourn over our own personal sin. It's an overwhelming sorrow in the fact that I've personally sinned against God. Now, the word that Jesus uses here for mourn is probably the strongest word in the Greek language to depict mourning, an extreme mourning, an extreme sorrow, an extreme grief. It's a spiritual mourning that comes over an understanding of my own personal sin and all of its ravaging effects. Let's look at three things, how we mourn our own personal sin. First of all, I mourn over the guilt of my sin. The guilt of my sin. Listen to David's anguishing words in Psalm 32, 1 through 5. And it should sound eerily familiar to what Jesus is saying here with these blessings. Blessed, congratulations to you. You are highly favored. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And listen to the guilt here. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Uh, do, do, do you hear the, 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 the anguish in David here? He's got this overwhelming sense of guilt. This guilt of, this, uh, of my sin is, is pressuring me. It's coming down hard upon me. I feel it. I feel the guilt of my sin, and that drives me to mourn. I mourn over the overwhelming guilt of sin that I have in my life, and it moves me to tears because I am guilty of this sin. But not only do we mourn over the guilt of our sin, but we mourn over the pollution of our sin. Let's just be real honest here this morning. How many of you want sin to be out of you? You want it, you want it get rid of you. <laughs> you want it out of you. You, want, you are bothered by the fact that you are a sinner. It is in you. You struggle with it every day. It's there. You hate it. You don't want it to be there. You want it out. It's polluting you, and it bothers you. Listen to Paul's struggle with sin and see if you can, you can hear your own self in Paul's words here. I think it's very, very honest the way Paul deals with this. In Romans 7, 18 through 19, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Listen to this. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does that describe you and me? Man, I really want to do good, and I don't. And the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. And so I just have this struggle with sin in my life where it's just a constant battle of having this sin in me. And then down in the early, later on in the passage, it moves Paul to say in Romans 7, 24, 25, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, wretched man that I am, because there's the pollution of sin. When we realize that sin is in us, and we struggle with it, and we battle with it, and we don't like it, and it's there, it should move us to mourn that, that it's there in us. There's the guilt of sin. I am guilty before God. There's the pollution of sin. It's in me, and I want it out. 
But most importantly, I think the reason we mourn, we mourn over the offense of sin. We have offended a holy God. We're moved to tears because it's against God that we've sinned. You remember the story of David and Bathsheba? David was up on the roof looking down when the kings were supposed to go out to war, and he sees this hot babe bathing down there, and he decides, I'm going to go have sex with her, and so he does, and he commits adultery, and then later on he has her husband murdered, Uriah. So David commits adultery, David commits murder, David lies and tries to cover it up. He's the king of Israel, and then Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, you're the man, and David is broken, and we have his recorded confession in Psalm 51. Listen to what David says after having committed this grievous offense against Bathsheba and Uriah. Psalm 51, 3-4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, obviously, if you're, if, you're, if you're reading this carefully, you're like, well, David sinned against Bathsheba, didn't he? And David sinned against Uriah, didn't he? Why does he say against God and God alone have I sinned? Because foundationally at its core, sin is an offense against a holy God. And we mourn. Do you and I mourn over the fact that sin is against God? Regardless of the consequences, regardless of how it makes us feel, at the core of its nature, sin is an offense against a holy God. And we feel it, and we mourn, and we grief. Not because you got caught, not because you have to face the consequences, not so that you can get, give a quick confession to God to get, him, to get God off the hook or get you off the hook. No, you mourn because at the core of the issue, You have sinned against your creator. You've sinned against God. Listen to the words of Peter when he sinned against his God. It's truly what it means to mourn. Matthew 26, 75. And Peter, remembering the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and what? Wept bitterly. Because he had offended his Savior. So we mourn over the fact that we're guilty in our sin. We mourn over the fact that there's the pollution of sin in us, and we mourn ultimately because it's an offense against the Holy God. So we mourn over the fact of our own personal sin and all of its ravaging effects. That's what Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who mourn. It's a spiritual type of mourning over my own personal sin. But I think it goes to another degree. I think it's also a spiritual, Holy Spirit, gospel-centered mourning, not only over my sins, but over the sins of others. We look around at our world, we look around at our nation, we look around at people that we love, and we see all the ravaging effects of sin upon others, and it moves us to mourn. Because we live among a people of unclean lips, and we are a people of unclean lips. We have a lot of examples in Scripture. Ezra. In Ezra 10, verse 1, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. 
Ezra, as the leader of the people, is weeping bitter tears, not only for his own personal sin, but for the sins of his nation. And so Ezra stands there and and he weeps bitterly because he knows that as the leader of the people, these people are idolatrous, these people have gone the wrong way, and it moves him to the core of his being, not only because of his own personal sin, but the sin of his nation. He's moved to tears. He's crying over sins of other people. We also see this in Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul comes to his church and says, Church, there's an incestuous relationship in your midst, an ungodly sexual relationship, and you're putting up with it. You're tolerating it. You're not saying anything about it. It's okay with you. What does Paul do? In 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2, he says this, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, incest. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to what? Mourn. Let him who has done this be removed among you. Paul's saying instead of tolerating this sin, instead of parading this sin, as a church it should move you to mourn because it's affecting the purity of the church. Later on in 2 Corinthians 12, 21, Paul says the same thing. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over those who've sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they've practiced. Paul's saying, there's people in the church that haven't repented over sexual sins, and I'm going to have to come, and it's going to cause me to mourn over the sins of others. I'm going to grieve. I'm going to cry. I'm going to weep bitterly because this sin is affecting our church, and all of its ravaging effects are tearing things apart. So Ezra wept over other people's sins. Paul wept over other people's sins. But what about Jesus himself? Do you remember that scene where Jesus goes and stands over Jerusalem? Now he mourned at Lazarus' tomb. Remember, Jesus wept. But there was a moment where Jesus stood over Jerusalem looking at the city, the city of God's people. And in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus weeps these tears. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus is mourning over the city of Jerusalem. It's idolatry, it's wickedness, it's brokenness. Jesus is weeping tears over the sin of this city. And let's make this real, really real this morning. In light of this past week's election, do we mourn over the state of our nation? Or do we just say, well, that's just the way things go? Does it move us to tears as God's people when we see things like abortion? Or when we see things like the proliferation of gay marriage? Or we see things like the undermining of religious freedoms? Do we mourn not only for our own sin? Yes. Do we mourn for our nation? Do we mourn for the sin of other people? Does it break our hearts to see the ugliness of sin within ourselves and the ugliness of sin among others? Now, before you get discouraged and walk out of here saying that was a very helpful message, Sean, let me be very clear here. Mourning is not the same as despairing because there's the second half of the verse. Mourning is not the same as discouraging or or despairing or or depression. Remember, it's a blessing to mourn, okay? 
Jesus says, blessed are, it's a good thing to mourn. Jesus said, it's a blessing to mourn. Why? What's the rest of the verse say? They shall be what? Comforted. So what does it mean to be comforted in the light of mourning? That's the third big question we're going to ask this morning. What does it mean to be comforted? Now, last week I introduced to you the, the tension of the already not yet. Remember last week, you have the kingdom of heaven right now. It's in the present tense. But this, this promise is future tense. Notice what it says. Blessed are those who mourn for their, or blessed are those who mourn for they, what? Shall be comforted. Will be comforted. One day, there will be ultimate comfort upon all who mourn. One day, there will be no more tears. And so that day has not come yet. So we live in the tension of the already, not yet. So how does Jesus comfort us now? Jesus brings comfort now. And if it's a spiritual type of mourning, and if it's a mourning over sin, and if it's a mourning over the ugliness of sin in our lives, then the comfort's got to be spiritual. It's got to be related to our sin. It's got to be related to the forgiveness of sins. And so what I want us to do is I want us just to briefly, I could spend a whole other set of sermons talking about these, but let's just look at four blessings of comfort that come from Jesus Christ in the gospel when we mourn. When we truly mourn over our sin, when we grieve over our sin, when we feel the guilt of our sin, when we feel the pollution of our sin, when we feel the offense of our sin, how does Jesus come to us in that moment and bring us comfort? How does he do it? Let's look at four wonderful truths about our present comfort. First of all, this comfort comes from the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter. You notice the play on words Jesus uses? They shall receive comfort. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the comforter. Jesus tells us in John 14, 26 and 27, the ESV uses the word helper. It's the word parakletos. It can mean comforter, helper, advocate, but the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so the Holy Spirit comes as the one that gives us that comfort. He comes and gives us that peace. Do you realize, and we've talked about this the past few months, that God God, the Holy Spirit, comes and takes up residence in your heart and lives inside you if you're a child of God, and he gives you that comfort. He gives you that peace. He gives you the presence of Christ. You can be comforted knowing that you have God himself living inside of you, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. But secondly, this comfort's only going to come when there's authentic repentance. Comfort is not promised if there's no repentance. Comfort is not promised if there's no repentance. If all your mourning does is just lead you to keep on doing what you're doing and getting upset because you get caught and getting upset because you have to deal with the consequences and it never leads to repentance, you will never be comforted. Listen to what John tells us in 1 John 1, 8-9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, if we repent, back to Psalm 32, 5, when David was struggling with that anguish of the guilt of sin, notice what he says there in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He owned up to it. 
He confessed it. He didn't hide it. He didn't try to minimize it. He came before the Lord in honesty. And then listen to this wonderful passage, Psalm 126.5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. I'll let you think about that one for a while. Here's the third comfort, and this is a beautiful one. Comfort comes in the power of sin being conquered in your life. The power of sin being conquered. Do you realize that when you were not a Christian, you were in bondage to sin? You were in slavery to sin. You were dead in sin. You could do nothing but sin. You were under its grip. You were under its power. And the moment that Christ reached down and grabbed you out of that pit and brought you to eternal life and gave you salvation, he conquered the power of sin in your life so that you do not have to obey its desires anymore. You're no longer under its slavery. Its sin is no longer your master. The power of sin in your life has been conquered. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4-5. through That God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. The moment that God saved you, the chains came off. Remember the song, Amazing Grace, the new version, My Chains Are Gone? If you are a Christian here this morning, you are no longer in the shackles of sin. The power of sin has been conquered. I'm reminded of that scene. Many of you have read the book, Pilgrim's Progress. Christian has tried everything to get rid of this weight of sin. He's got this huge backpack of sin, the burden of sin on his back, and he's tried everything to get rid of it. He's gone through the slough of despond where he almost drowns, and then he, he sees the Mount, uh, Mount um, Sinai where he tries to climb up, obeying the law, and he, he just can't make it. And all of a sudden, he gets to the foot of the cross, and he kneels at Mount Calvary, and he looks up at the cross, and the weight of sin falls off his back, and it rolls down the mountain, and it's swallowed up by the earth. And John Bunyan writes, Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And then, and then Bunyan writes that strings of, springs of tears come flooding down Christian's face. And he jumps up three times. And probably in the words of Russell Adels, we go, Yippee! He jumps up three times and begins to sing. Because the power of sin has been canceled, conquered. But not only has the power of sin been conquered, the penalty of sin has been canceled. You're no longer under the power of sin as a force in your life, but you're no longer under the penalty of sin to condemn you in this life. You're not guilty. You've been acquitted. The moment that Jesus Christ gave you new life, his righteousness was credited to you and your sin was credited to him. So God the Father can look down upon your life and he can make a glorious pronouncement. He can say, not guilty. The penalty of sin has been canceled by Jesus on the cross. When Paul says in Romans 8, 1 through 2, there is therefore now what? No condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit is life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So, so this comfort, when Jesus says, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall receive comfort, this comfort comes really in the forgiveness of sin. 
the shackles of sin coming off, the forgiveness, the righteousness, the power of sin being broken, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, the penalty of sin. And listen to the words of Jesus because he's speaking to you this morning. He's speaking to me, I know that. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus has come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you hear the invitation from Jesus? If you're mourning over your sin, if you feel the weight of that sin, if you feel the guilt of that sin, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. I will give you comfort. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you joy. Listen to what James tells us. It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. When we mourn is when we're comforted. When we grieve is when we're forgiven. When we're sad is when we're truly happy. Listen to what James says in James 4, 8 through 10. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Sounds very similar to the words of Jesus. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. But then notice verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's a paradox here in James. If you truly want to be exalted, if you want to be lifted up, if you want to be encouraged, if you want to be comforted, if you want to be, be rejoicing, what does James say? Be wretched. Be miserable. Mourn. Mourn over your sin. Humble yourself before the Lord. Intense mourning results in incredible joy. But if you're like me, you still struggle with one big question. What does Jesus say in this passage of Scripture? They shall be comforted. There's the tension of the already, not yet. And if you're like me, you don't like the fact that you have sin in you. And you want it out of you as quick as you can. And there's never going to be a day that goes by that you don't struggle with sin. The only day that you won't struggle with sin is the day that you step foot into heaven. So right now, we struggle with sin. We're continually to mourn over our sin, but Jesus promises there's going to come a day when you won't mourn anymore. And why won't we mourn anymore? Because there will be no sin anymore to mourn over. Because he's going to make all things New. And so here's the, ultimate, here's the ultimate joy. Not only is the power of sin conquered, not only is the penalty of sin canceled, but the pollution of sin is finally crushed. We will no longer have to struggle with sin ever again. Anybody waiting for that day? Listen to the words of Jesus in Revelation 21, 3-5. And see if this puts it into perspective. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be what? Mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore 
For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus says there's no more mourning. Why will there be no more mourning? There'll be no more sin. Can you even conceive of a day where you will never have to struggle with sin again in your life? I mean, I don't think as humans we can even conceive of that. But Jesus says, the moment that I make all things new in the new heavens and the new earth with your glorified body, you will no longer mourn because there will be no more sin. Right now we mourn because we have sin in our lives. And when there's comfort in the gospel, and there's comfort in the sins being forgiven, there, there's comfort in the penalty of sin being canceled, but one day the pollution of sin will totally be gone. And so here's the issue. Living in the kingdom means we need to have two real clear views of things. If we don't have these clear views, we will have a shallow understanding of Christianity, a very shallow understanding of Christianity. And I'm afraid our world and even our churches has a shallow understanding of Christianity because they don't understand these two things. Number one, we have a shallow view of sin. And number two, we have a shallow view of joy. When we don't understand sin, how will we ever begin to understand the joy that comes in the forgiveness of sin? So we need to be realistic about what sin is, that it's an offense against God. Show me a person. Show me a person who is poor in spirit who agonizes over the fact that they are nothing without Christ and they mourn over their sin and they look to Christ and they find the forgiveness in Christ and they cry out, all I have is Christ and they, 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 they find the, the comfort of Christ. That's the person who's truly joyful. Does it make sense? Those who are the most mournful are the most joyful. It's upside down. The kingdom is upside down. To truly be happy means we need to be sad. To truly be joyful means we need to mourn. Intense mourning results in incredible joy. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Does that describe you this morning? Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able. He is able. He's willing. Doubt no more. Come ye needy, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Does that describe you this morning? If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. If you wait until you're good enough to come to Jesus, you will never come because you can't be good enough to come to Jesus. You come warts and all, You come with all of your baggage. You come with nothing in your hands to bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And Jesus stands ready to save you. Now there's a verse of that song from the old hymn that goes like this. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. 
in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Will you arise and go to Jesus this morning? Will you undergo this intense mourning over your sin so that you can truly find incredible joy in the Savior? Intense mourning results in incredible joy. This is the good news of the kingdom. The good news this morning is that you don't have to leave here the way that you came in here. If you've come in here weary and broken and bruised and battered and you've come in here lost and you've come in here without a clue as to how you're ever going to have a right relationship with God, if you've come in here with guilt in your heart and you may not even know how to express exactly what you're feeling, but if you've come into this place this morning and you have all of these issues welling up inside you, you can leave different than how you walked in here this morning because Christ stands ready to save all sinners who will cast themselves at his feet you got to mourn and you got to grieve and then you hear the words you'll be comforted you will be comforted